Welcome to Antiquity in Gotham, a podcast that explores the reinterpretation, reception, and legacy of antiquity in New York City. This podcast primarily focuses on the legacy of classical antiquity in New York City, but today we're going to venture further afield to understand the importance and the appropriation and reception of antiquity, particularly to understand how the gardens, landscapes, and villas of ancient Rome were reinterpreted to create remarkable neo-antique gardens. With me today is the scholar, Catherine von Stockelberg, who's worked extensively on ancient Roman gardens and villas. She's looked at their meaning, their significance, how they relate to gender and art and architecture. But also what she's worked on, which is most relevant for us today, is the reinterpretation of Roman gardens and villas after antiquity in 19th and 20th century America and also in Europe. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Lizzie. It's a great pleasure. So before we get to the kind of reinterpretation of ancient gardens, I think it would be helpful for our audience to understand what scholars do know about ancient gardens and how we know about them. We both worked extensively on gardens, and we're often, I always feel, met with this question of, oh, ancient gardens, how can you really study those? So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the types of evidence that we have for ancient gardens. Yes. So originally, our sources are usually textual based. Poets were writing in um, both epic and lyric poetry. And those initial textual sources, which were really what the modern world mostly had to go on for you know, the greater part of the history, were eventually uh, supported with uh, evidence from what we now call archaeology and art history. In other words, material examples that were uncovered over the century. And this is, you know, encompasses a wide variety of materials. We're looking at frescoes, we're looking at tomb paintings, we're looking at sculptural reliefs, we're looking at tiny little intaglios, you know, gold uh, sort of signet rings and trying to uh, analyze what exactly, you know, are these figures holding up, or rather the branches and the trees and course, with the development of uh, archaeology and archaeological science, all that um, evidence is now really being contextualized into the actual sites of the gardens. And that's really like a very exciting moment for us because we're able to take material that we've known about for centuries, uh, and we're finally able to recontextualize it back into the original sites. So it's really a very exciting time then to be working on gardens, to being able to try and understand their forms, but also the implications of the way the gardens were designed, the plants they may have included. And so we're really, as scholars, um, able to really understand a lot more, which is very exciting. But a question also that I wondered about, maybe you can help us understand, is what are the traditions? What types of gardens do the ancient Romans or the ancient Greeks or the Egyptians have? Well, as far as we understand the development of gardens as a as a specific demarcated space, they emerge in the reigns of the range of the ancient Near East, uh, you know, from the earliest Sumerian evidence we have, uh, moving up through you know, Assyrian uh, reigns into the uh, Egyptian dynasties and beyond. They 
emerge primarily as productive spaces. So they are areas that are set aside to grow things that are useful for us to eat. But they're also important as sacred spaces. So they are associated with the gods, either through the presence of special trees or special flowers. And in turn, these trees and flowers are used to uh, in the worship of the gods. As we progress, this productive and sacred space then becomes associated with associations with royalty and with conquest as well. And one of the things we see emerging, uh, especially with the Egyptians uh, and the Persians, is the, the taking of flora from regions that you have conquered and recreating them in your core territories as sort of a, a subject environment. Yeah, and that's something I guess that the Romans take on as well, because I think we have later descriptions when we have Pompey parading trees and landscapes, as well as then Titus and Vespasian who parade balsam after they conquered Judea. So it's interesting to think about the plants as kind of vessels for politics, for authority, representation, and symbolism, because I think often today people think of plants as just plants, and they don't maybe understand that they are very potent symbols. Although, you know, if we think about the United States, we all like our apples. We think of Johnny Appleseed and bring an apple to your teacher, uh, at least certainly when I was a child. Um, so maybe we should all look a little bit more closely at the plants that surround us and think about how they might be more political or maybe more culturally specific than we think they often are. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think this is a point that really comes across when one's looking at um, representations of uh, gardens or even just, just individual representations of plants and trees, flowers and trees in art and literature, because they're not just there by accident. There's a conscious choice to place those there on the part of the artist, on the part of the writer. And the reason is because they have the symbolism. And the Romans were very much alive to the symbolic dimensions of the natural environment of what we would call the gardened environment. You've mentioned that gardens have a connection to politics, uh, to religion, or to sacred spaces. So how then do gardens, at least perhaps in the Roman world, and maybe the Hellenistic world, relate to residences? Where do we find gardens uh, connected to houses? One of the ways that we identify uh, a a garden as opposed to sort of just a bit of landscape is by its proximity and its integration to architectural space. So we can say that certainly that for uh, Roman architecture, gardens were an intrinsic part of what made a home desirable, what made a dwelling desirable. And I use the word dwelling because uh, that can cover everything from your single unit house, the dormers, all the way up to these you know, magnificent luxury villas that we read about. And we do know that there is you know, emphasis placed on having these garden spaces. They're usually quite central to the structures when we're talking about urban environments. So rather than what we would consider like your typical front or back garden with your, your, your modern suburban development, what you would have would be your street-facing frontage 
and when you would go through the house, when you entered sort of the midpoint of the house or the midpoint back part of the house, that's when you would encounter what we consider to be the garden space. It would be an open space, usually surrounded by you know, more rooms leading off from it to encourage air and circulation of light and, and people as well. But that central space would be planted and either the entire ground would be planted or there's evidence for pot planters. And if you had neither of those, if you really had no space whatsoever, the minimum you could have would be a wall painted with a garden scene. And this really acted you know, in place of a garden. So in other words, gardens were central. They're not an afterthought. They're not a bit of green garnish, but they're really integral to dwellings, to homes, to any type of living environment for the ancient Romans. Yes, they're absolutely central. We can see from Pompeii, which of course provides us with our most detailed evidence for ancient gardens, that in apartment complexes, they were desirable if they were built around a garden space. And in private homes, even if there was only about a meter of space available, there would still be an effort to present it as a garden. Even if you couldn't walk inside it or even necessarily grow any plants, it would be decorated as if it were a garden. So that's a really good reminder that gardens were essential and that if you had a tiny bit of space, you would even maximize it. Now, you brought up Pompeii. If you were a New Yorker kind of wandering the streets of Manhattan in the 1880s or 1890s, how would you know things about ancient gardens? What would be your sources? What would you have read or seen? Well, in the late 19th century, there were two very popular sources for uh, understanding or the knowledge of ancient gardens, one literary, one visual. The literary one, which I will return to in a moment, was Edward Bulwer-Lytton's runaway bestseller, The Last Days of Pompeii, uh, which features gardens quite heavily. Your second major source of information, which was visual, came from the art of Lawrence Alma Tadema, who tended to use, tended to paint scenes that utilized a lot of Mediterranean greenery in his you know, recreations of Greek and Roman scenes. So these were very popular, reproduced images of you know, Sappho playing Falcaeus, of Romans lounging around in their gardens or shopping in the streets. And you would see oleander and pines and roses and little bits of box hedge to pyre. And how did Bulwer-Lytton and Alma Tadema know about these things? Well, they knew about it through very, very close reading of ancient texts and through assiduously following the excavation reports that were coming out of Pompeii and Herculaneum. So what's fascinating is, in a sense, the Pompeii and the gardens that a New Yorker or, say, someone in London would be familiar out was through the interpretation of art and literature. And that really, we always have to see that there are filters that impact how people engage with antiquity, but also that there were two really good sources available. And as paintings were being reproduced on a kind of wider platform with lithograms and etchings, people would have seen some of these paintings that you're mentioning, even if they couldn't afford to own one. So it also reminds us that maybe as an individual, you didn't necessarily have had to have a classical education with Latin and Greek, but you could be familiar with these things because they were in the general kind of cultural milieu of the period. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, originally, the fascination with ancient gardens, and particularly with, with villa landscapes in particular, had come through uh, knowledge, reading of ancient texts, mostly by Cicero or younger and elder Pliny's or poets such as Statius. But most people wouldn't have the access to this kind of information. So everything they knew about gardens, uh, ancient gardens, was refracted through these popular reproductions. Again, I'm a New Yorker. It's, let's say it's now 1900, and I've read The Last Days of Pompeii. I have, you know, been to the Chicago World's Fair and seen all these neoclassical buildings. Could I actually go someplace and see a replica or an interpretation of a garden? Is there a way, without having to go to Pompeii and sail across the ocean, that a New Yorker could actually visit or see interpretation or a kind of reconstruction of an ancient garden and house? Yes, you could. It was a short train ride away. Uh, all you had to do was catch the train to Saratoga Springs, uh, which was a popular tourist destination because of the waters and of the races there. Great place to get away from the summer heat. And there you would find the Pompeia, which was a full-scale reproduction of a, an actual house of from Pompeii, the House of Panza, to be uh, specific. And this was opened in 1899 to the uh, public, and it was very cheap to get in. It was not hugely expensive. It wasn't free. And um, it was created by a man called Franklin Webster Smith, who was absolutely fascinated with ancient architecture. Uh, he was from Boston originally, and he was a hardware merchant. But his main calling in life, his real calling, really would have been as an architect. And he had visited Europe many times. In 1854, he visited the Crystal Palace exhibition and saw the Pompeian rooms on exhibition there. And he came back to the U.S. and really, and he thought to himself, you know what, we can actually do better. Uh, so let me interrupt for just one second. Can you tell our readers very briefly what the Crystal Palace exhibition was? And I like the idea that the Americans can outdo the Brits. <laughs> The Crystal Palace exhibition in 1854 was one of a series of what we now call world fairs. They were also called great expositions. The naming you know, tends to vary, but they're basically big events that showcase the national achievements of every developed country in the world. They occurred in Paris, they happened in, in Chicago, uh, and this one, the Crystal Palace exhibition, uh, happened in London. And during this, you know, as part of this exhibition, which involved, you know, art, involved industry, involved in, you know, cultural showcasing of achievements throughout the world, there was a reproduction of an ancient Roman room or a series of rooms, probably to showcase arts and furnishings in the classical style that were becoming very popular at the time. Tell us a little bit more about the genesis that, and the house of Panza that it was modeled on, and, and what were the different components? And if, if I was a visitor, because the house no longer survives as I understand it, what would I go and see and experience? So as a visitor to the house of Panza, you would disembark from the train Saratoga Springs, and it was a very short walk from the train station up to the house. It's probably, it's less than five minutes, I've walked it. What you would see, which, which is no longer there, the house itself is there, but a lot of the 
upper story and extra decoration is gone, you would have seen a long, low building. And on the top of the building, you would have seen a rooftop pergola. So you would have seen this long, low building, which was quite distinct and quite different from every other kind of architecture surrounding it. And you would have been immediately struck by this uh, greenery growing up on this pergola. Upon reaching the front entrance, you would walk through the front entrance and you would find yourself in a Roman atrium and leading off from that atrium, a series of typical Roman rooms, the dining room, the resting room. Moving further through the building, you would then find garden rooms. And then there'd also be an exhibition. And of course, you would also have seen the gift shop, which was uh, directly to the left as one walked through. Well, that is very American. And that certainly does anticipate museums in the 20th century in terms of having a souvenir from which you need to remember your visit. Can you tell us a little bit about the garden room? So he clearly was very aware. And it's interesting, as you describe the approach up, that there are gardens on the exterior, but there were also gardens inside. So tell us what were the other features of the garden rooms and how did he create these, with paintings or with plants? He did it both with paintings and with plants. As one walked in through the atrium, we have uh, photographs from that period. And he staged with plants that gave the impression of being in a natural Mediterranean environment, palms mostly. So you would find them in the atrium, you would find them in the peristyle. And then as one moved through into the garden, the site actually had two what we would call garden rooms, garden sites. The first was an entirely enclosed site with a replica of a garden painting from Herculaneum. And we don't have the room anymore, we have the photographs, and we can see from the photographs that plants in pots, real plants in pots, have been placed in front of the garden painting to give the sort of illusionistic effect that you are actually walking into a garden. And we know from archeological evidence that this is something that the Romans themselves actually did. If you didn't have enough room for a fully developed garden, you would have the garden painting and you would strategically position what plants and small trees you did have in front of that garden painting to give an illusion of depth. Moving through that, one would, you know, the visitor would then find themselves in an open-air dining room, an open-air triclinium. And again, unfortunately, we have no visual evidence from this, but we have the written accounts where you could recline on the couches and you would be surrounded by vines and flowers. And again, this is a replication of what we know of the Roman experience because the Romans wrote of exactly the same kind of environments. So it really sounds like he took a lot of attention to how he created the garden, that this is an informed creation, not one that's kind of materializes out of the air. So, you know, the house was clearly very popular in um, the late 1880s and the 1890s. Um, but what happened to it? Um, I believe the house was sold in the start or just in the early part of the 20th century. Yes, in the uh, last decade of the 19th century, there were a series of financial crises and Smith went bankrupt and he was forced to sell the Pompeia. Uh, it was bought in 1907. It became a Masonic lodge. Some of its interior was preserved, but then over the decades, it sort of fell apart. And uh, it was now is a uh, bought by a private company and is their headquarters. 
Oh, so again, the building has a continued life, even if it's not its original intention. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, if one goes and, and visits, if you look up, you can see that there's still a, a skylight paved over and uh, lovely sort of little lion head uh, water spouts that would have uh, channeled the water into that into that floor. So this is a site that not many people are familiar about. This is a place where a New Yorker in the end of the 19th century could have gone and visited. But today, if I was a New Yorker or an American, this doesn't exist for me to go to. But I think there is a site that many of us, even though we're not based on the West Coast, have been to or certainly have heard of that is kind of a spiritual kin or sibling, certainly a family member, and that's the Getty Villa in Malibu, California, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And when the Getty Villa was open to the public in 1974, it created absolute horror among the academic and architectural elite because it was seen to be such a throwback to this uh, mid to late 19th century uh, vogue for recreations of Roman buildings. Uh, and the Pompeia was, I believe, actually, actually referenced as one of them. So Getty mm -hmm. didn't seem to really care what critics or say scholars or academics thought about it. He really wanted to build this building and used every resource that Getty money could have to offer. Why did he build it? And what were his goals with it? It's interesting that you phrase the question this way, because actually Getty's uh, objectives and Smith's objectives were very, very similar. They really wanted to bring to the American public the sense, the experience of what it was to be part of the ancient world. When, as a young man, Getty had uh, visited Rome and his diaries say, uh, give an account of his visiting the Basilica of Maxentius in 1941. And he writes that it was like stepping into the ancient world. And he actively says, he's recorded as saying that he wanted to provide visitors to his museum with that experience of stepping into the ancient world. The purpose of the Getty Villa was to showcase his collection of antique art, but he wasn't content to do it within the normal or traditional confines of museum display. He wanted to do something that was really quite radical by our standards. In, in the early 70s, it seemed that like it was completely anachronistic. But what Getty was essentially trying to do is that he was really trying to bring people to the past and make them question their relationship with the past in the way that one doesn't necessarily uh, encounter in your, in your sort of white box museum environment. Well, in certain ways, you could think that what Getty's attempting to do with the creation of this villa is what many people are doing now with virtual reality or fly-throughs or reconstructions. He's trying to give the viewer and the public a mechanism to experience ancient art and to experience what life might have been like in an ancient villa. So not only did he display art, but he also created really rather remarkable gardens. And maybe you could say a few words about those gardens for us. Yes, in keeping with the actual site of the Villa dei Papyri, we know that the Villa dei Papyri had two 
significant garden sites. They had a small, well, relatively small, this is a very large villa, so this is a small garden by these standards, it's actually quite a large garden for, for, for hours. There is a, a planted atrium space, and then there's what we call the Great Peristyle space, which is this long, long uh, colonnaded area centered by what looks like a swimming pool, and we know that the Romans did in fact use them as swimming pools. They were known as piscinae, fish ponds, but they're a lot more glamorous, and they were the absolute luxury features. And we know from Roman writings that the Romans focused their gardening know-how on these areas of the villas. They would be very lavishly planted. Uh, and so Getty does exactly the same. He plants around these areas. So he added the herb garden. The herb garden is important because villas were productive spaces. That was their primary value. They were enormous display spaces, but production was part of the prestige of display, or the display of prestige, rather. So Getty adds this herb garden to his recreation of the Villa de Papyri. It includes a small vineyard, it includes a little orchard, and it's really a nod to this productive capacity of ancient villa architecture. And then he also adds a little, what we might call a water garden. It's a small court centered by two fountains, a, a circular fountain in the middle and then a mosaic fountain that's actually the reproduction of a fountain from, from Pompeii, from the house of the large fountain, as sort of a what we would call a nymphaea, a Roman water feature is lavishly decorated with mosaic. So... Visitors to the Getty Villa are encountering not only ancient art in its, as, as one would have experienced it in an architectural context, they're also gaining uh, an experience of the gardened context, which we know was very important to the Romans, because a lot of what we see today in museums as examples of Roman art, Roman sculpture in particular, were actually made to be seen not inside the house, but within the garden environment. So this reminds us again that the garden was really central to ancient conceptions, particularly ancient Roman conceptions of space, and that what Getty's doing, which no other museum really can do, although the Met at one point did have a Pompeian garden design for its Greco-Roman collection, although that's now long gone, this is really one of the few ways that we can experience an ancient garden, ancient art, as we should have done. Because, as you know, if you go back to Pompeii, all that sculpture has been removed to Naples or elsewhere. There isn't an opportunity to see sculpture to the same degree as you see it at the Getty uh, in a Roman house today. Yes, and the value of it is, once we see these sculptures in something like their original environment, we can begin to really think about what these sculptures actually meant to the Romans, what they meant in terms of placement, what they meant in terms of uh, connection, thematic connections between them, and how one would move between spaces and encounter this art. So what you're also impelling us when we understand ancient art is that we really have to understand the context. And so the importance of knowing where objects are from and where they would have displayed really helps us to understand them better because we can start to think about these spaces as kind of ensembles and multimedia environments. But without something like the Getty Villa, 
we maybe wouldn't have a framework either as a student or as a scholar or a member of the educated public to really experience these things. Yes, without the Getty Villa, one could still do it, but it would be a lot harder. The Getty Villa uh, provides us with a important mechanism by which to understand what are actually very complicated cognitive processes that are taking place unlike other architectural spaces, triclinia, which are used for eating, uh, museums, which are used for viewing art, gardens really sort of are used for themselves. And therefore, when one enters a garden, one is really immersed within it. There's no sort of barrier between yourself and what you're experiencing in terms of sights and scents and smells. It reminds us that when we visit the Getty Villa, that we have an opportunity to experience or almost experience what an ancient garden would have been like and helps us to really understand the value of gardens to art, architecture, and also in and of themselves as an art form that really antiquity reached amazing heights with. Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time today to tell us a little bit about how we might go and think about or even visit an ancient Roman garden today in the United States. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you very much for having me. This podcast was supported by a grant from the Classical Association of the Atlantic States. If you want to learn more about that organization, please visit them at caas-cw.org.